Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zanki Dillo Roshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center located in Boulder, Colorado. We are in our final push towards our annual fundraising efforts. To date, we have raised 98% of our $20,000 goal. We are so close to the finish line. If you would like to contribute to this campaign and support Zanki Roshi's continued teachings, you can choose to become a member or support us with a one-time donation. Any amount, small or large, is greatly appreciated and makes an impact. You can find a link in the episode notes. Today's talk was recorded during our most recent weekend sitting intensive on December 10th. We invite you to join us for any of our meditation intensives and our public Dharma talks, either in person in our Zendo or online. You can find the Dharma talk and event schedule, as well as the Zoom link on our website. I've put the link in the show notes. We hope you'll join us. Now here's Zanki Roshi. Good afternoon. I hope you're doing okay. I um, find it um, always a little bit surprising after all these years of sitting sashin or a weekend intensive like this. That um, how I meet myself in this activity of sazen. I think something powerful about zazen is that we don't meet our we don't meet the idea that we have of ourselves. We may meet that too, but we meet ourselves the way we actually feel right now. That can be unexpected or unwanted. could be unexpected and unwanted, or it could be unexpected and delightful. Sometimes I wonder, you know, maybe the pain we feel in an intensive like this is do we attribute it to, you know, we can attribute it to this unnatural position of sitting cross-legged for a long time. But if you want to, you can sit in a chair, you know, make yourself more comfortable. And I wonder if then you, um, are you then really more comfortable? Yeah, maybe to a certain degree in a physical sense. But what I find is there is a certain level of tension that 
surfaces in long sitting like we are doing right now that I find uh, mysterious and sometimes really mm, insulting, kind of like, you know, offensive. <laughs> but I'm, I'm so familiar with it that I've given up on that, but it's like um, astonishing that um, the body carries this extra tension. What is it good for? Where does, where does this come from? Maybe you are entirely, you know, relaxed and blissed out, and I'm speaking to something you is not your experience, and then I'm sorry. <clears throat> I have this um, idea, I don't know if it's true, but it's, it's, it's a way with which I can touch this phenomenon um, that we're kind of bracing ourselves on the inside. If you were entirely open to the world, I'll just say that as a kind of black box, you know, the world. If you were just open um, to the world and you would let it touch you in every possible way, may that be too, um, that would be, may, may we know, feel, think, react instinctively in a way that says that'd be too much. I can't be that open and resonant with the world, so I need to brace myself. It's like a physical, you know, and psychologically we talk about being defensive, but it's like this being defend the bodily aspect of being defensive is what I'm now trying to call. It's like you're braced inside. My experience is that there are um, layers of this bracing. You know, once you've created a certain kind of brace, some kind of hardness inside, and then that becomes also something you don't want to feel. So then you. Brace against the brace. If you have a persistent uh, pain in your body, you might try out actually talking to yourself or however you can do it, but give yourself permission to f give yourself complete permission to feel this pain. And my experience is when I give myself complete permission to feel this particular pain, whatever it is, the brace against the brace kind of falls away. Like I'm now I'm open and soft enough to receive this pain, and it's actually a relaxation. I feel the pain more intensely in a way, but I've let go of one layer of bracing. Um, also, again, I'm just speaking kind of tentatively to describe a territory. 
um, I think this internal bracing corresponds with an outside, with an external or an intent to of external control. I, I know this experience from being in the cold um, a lot. Um, when you're in the cold, and the cold becomes a kind of attacker, an enemy, it's like you don't want to feel it. The body braces against the cold. But the fact that the cold can become an enemy is really interesting, I think. Like an aggressor, you know, you, you can get aggressive with a cold. Like, I don't want to experience you, basically. You know, I want to get inside. I want to get away from you. Sometimes I think we live in a world, in our time, day and age, we live in a world in which we have, in which we have created so much external control, trying to hold certain experiences away from us, that we don't even know anymore what it would be like to be really exposed to, like a, I don't know, what what do you want to call that, like a, an animal-like experience. Like the way we sit here in this in this room, I think I, I just take for granted, but you know, boy, what goes into it to be able to construct houses and have central heating and all that. Amazing. So comfortable and convenient. We expect it, you see. It's like we we expect that level of control and convenience to a certain degree, and when it goes away, we feel threatened. So it's like that external bracing we we hardly even notice, but when it falls away, we notice how we're internally bracing against it. Like that that really shouldn't happen to me. Well, my experience is when I um, encounter these this bracing and the discomfort behind the bracing and the discomfort that the bracing um, causes, you can keep rebelling against it or you can kind of give up. And when we give up, there's a softness that comes. I think, I think as difficult as zazen is, the, the fruit of zazen is this kind of inner softness, like the opposite of the bracing. It's like an inner softness. And it allows a kind of intimacy with the world that is 
truly nourishing and beautiful. And it's not there as long as I'm bracing. It's not there. And when the, when that resistance, that bracing releases, there is this softness, this openness, this willingness to be intimate, not with your, the idea of yourself, but with, I say, I'll say that cautiously, with the actual, your actual self. And I don't mean self as in that, just this experience right now, like how it feels to be this body and mind. What's that like? And that softness is um, acceptance. It should be easy to just sit and accept your experience as it is. But it's not. This is a this is what a conundrum. How can that be so hard? Allowing our breathing to be just as it is, exactly as it is right now. Let the breathing find its own way. And let the body be exactly as it is. If it's tense, it's tense. It's tense in certain areas, it's relaxed in others, it changes. How to, how can you let that be that way? Let yourself be in, in space as you are. Sometimes we don't want to be ourselves. Maybe we want to be somebody else. We don't. It's a fantasy. We don't get that chance. <laughs> this is like sim the most simple form of realism. You don't get it. You don't get a choice. You, you know, you might might as well start making peace with being you. Because it's never going to change. I mean, that fact, fact of life. Inhabiting a body and mind that you call you. Yes, it's changing, but, you know, it changes in dynamically in response to circumstances. And uh, 
can be very dramatic, our resistance, our, you know, we can cry inside like that we don't want to be, want, don't want to experience what we're experiencing. I've been uh, reading this German sociologist. Um, his name is Hartmut Rosa, and um, he, um, I talked about this last week. He makes a point that we live in a time that is in which we collectively, as humans, have achieved a level of control over the world that is unprecedented. We, we do that through science, not, I mean, through knowing the world, through science. And we do it through technology that allows us to manipulate the world, and we do it through bureaucratic administrative systems that allow us to manage large areas of the world, and we do it through economics, you know, capitalism that turn, commercializes everything into objects that can be sold and and I find this to be very true. I mean, we live in our time, so it's the water we swim in, so it's difficult to see the water. So that's why I find it interesting to look at it that way. It's like, and you know it from your own experience. Like, we could pull out this pocket computer that we all carry now. We still call it a phone, which is funny. Um, so we can pull out this pocket computer and say, like, I want this. And then you, like, Type it in, you push a button, you don't even have to know your credit card anymore, you just double click on the side, and then it comes. You know, that thing comes. <laughs> I mean, it's, I feel stupid to say it, right? It's trivial, like we love it, and at the same time, it's just, there are these hedonistic visions of paradise, right, where like these roasted chickens fly directly into your mouth where you don't, have to do anything, just, you know, comes by, you grab it. It's like, it's like that. <laughs> it can come, It what you type in and, and order, it could come in hours, within hours. Some things, I mean, it's offensive, take days to arrive. During the pandemic, I mean, it was terrible. There were supply chain issues. <laughs> All of that took longer. Sometimes you couldn't get the item. Unbelievable. <clears throat> but it's like I'm making fun of it, but it's also we live in an economic system in which when this mechanism of um, production and 
um, commerce and you know buying and selling slows down, we immediately have instability in the world. You know, call it recession. So we actually need constant growth to just have stability. Because if you don't have growth, then nobody wants to invest into that process, and so the money dries up, and then everything falls apart. <clears throat> you know, we live in that system, like we think we're just like this little human being, where we participate in this system, and it affects us deeply. So sometimes I think you can't just practice Buddhism from the 13th or 7th or century or 2,500 years ago because we really live in different times. So I just wonder how to, I don't know, clarify that. Doesn't mean that these old ideas don't apply, but maybe uh, some new ideas need to be joined to those old ideas so that we feel our practice is, is up-to-date in meeting the circumstances that we actually encounter. But anyway, this uh, sociologist suggests that um, in these institutionalized processes of control, we get used to, we get acculturated. It's not like just an individual choice, we get in, acculturated into treating the world as a point of aggression, he says. I think that's really true. Like, in a way, you could say building a house and heating it is actually aggression, right? because you are saying, I don't want winter inside you know you stay out winter you stay outside i'm inside and then uh, you extract fossil fuels and burn them and for the longest time i think as we humans have done this rather innocently you know, and we now know that there's that there's a price for this The world, everyone's doing it, and more and more people want to live as conveniently as we do here in the West. We're heating up the planet, and it kills. That heat kills. So our own desire for convenience, which I'm provocatively calling aggression, actually is aggressive because cumulatively and collectively it shows itself to be a force of death, of killing. That's a new situation. To have that consciousness, to know that. And I think that's why people don't want to know it. It's it you have to it's so terrible. It's like you kinda of have to deny it. I understand why people don't want to belief in anthropocentric, anthropogenic, man-made, human-made climate, global warming, climate change.
Because what we've, what we're treating as our basic needs, now we have to actually recognize as our, as the result, our karma, as the result of our intent to control and our basic aggressiveness, like that we want things to be good for ourselves, better, more pleasant. The more we expect control, and can expect it because we have the technological means, the more threatening it becomes when things seem to be out of control. Small events like, you know, your internet isn't working. Ah. Now what? (laughs) Or your heater collapses. Or in a big scale, like, um, you know, a pandemic. There's a disease that is not entirely within our control. And um, I think the, no, I'm not, this would be silly, I'm not advocating that we should all sit outside right now. Although now and then as a practice, it would be maybe good, so that's why we have wild dharma. But... um, The alternative to um, treating the world as a point of aggression would be to um, be rediscover or discover in a new way the world as a partner of resonance. Resonance, you know, I give this example of you strike a bell, and if you have a bell of similar build, then this second bell will resonate with the frequencies of the bell that you just struck. So we are, if you take this image as like, Um, a template for any encounter in the world that is coming through the senses, then it's like, what I mean by resonance is to be affected, to be touched, and to be reached and touched and moved inside by an encounter. The more we try to control things, 
the less they become partner, partners for resonance. The more you distance yourself and control, the, le- the more you're bracing yourself, actually, and inhibiting resonance. You can still know the thing conceptually, but you will, you will not be touched. Now, I think there is a good reason to try to control things, because being moved and touched inside by the, in our encounters with the world is, makes us vulnerable. In a number of ways, because sometimes we desire this way of being moved and touched, you know, if it creates a positive emotion. But if it's a negative emotion, it's it feels dangerous. So-called negative emotion feels dangerous. And you don't, you if you're really open for resonance, you don't, you never know how much you will be affected by something. So the first thing in resonance is you'll be affected in ways that you that's not in not in your control. And then the second is that this being affected calls for a response. And then we are called forth to respond and we don't we we don't it's always it's not clear what that response should be. That's also not in our control because each situation is different. And in that dialogue of being affected and called to respond, we become somebody different than we were. And how different it is that we become is also not in our control. We evolve into, it sounds like a good thing, you know, it's like, oh, you become somebody different, but it's... You see, that's why it can, we can feel anxiety around trying new things or letting ourselves be drawn into a relationship because it changes us. And this is the fascinating thing. We, we long, we, we so deeply long for a resonant relationship with the world and with other people. But we live in a time in which we are more and more encouraged to control everything. So we have some, I think, some room to navigate and to choose how we want to meet uh, the world and, um, I think Zen practice is about cultivating the ability to be in a resonant relationship with the world. It's weird because there too, when when practice gets institutionalized, it quickly can turn into an attempt to control. I recently spoke with someone who did this 
first course about transformative practice, you know, sort of the late, he just, you know, and then he talked to me about, like, oh, you gave all these practice suggestions. I really like the one about entering rooms with the foot that's closest to the hinges. <laughs> well, that's a practice that I've learned in a monastic context, and so one way you can explain that is to why that makes sense is before you enter the zendo, you know where your feet are. And because now you know where your feet are, you are inhabiting your feet intentionally. You can now choose the foot that's closest to the hinges. But if you don't inhabit your feet intentional, attentionally, you'll just walk in and you're not aware of what you're doing. So by creating this awareness of using a particular foot, you are forced to intentionally inhabit your body. So yesterday I spoke about this shift from conceptual existence to attentional presence. Like that's a practice to do that. And when you are intentionally present in your feet, the idea is you then you it's fairly easy to be intentionally present in your whole body and then when you enter the room you are ready to resonate with it. You can let the room affect you and move you internally because you inhabit the body attentionally. Otherwise, you'd walk into the room and you inhabit the room conceptually. It's just that room that I know. It's this zendo, you know. You're not affected and touched by the particularity of the room in this very moment. So the instruction is do that when you enter the zendo. And the expectation, of course, is do it with every room you enter and then do it with every moment you live. Seems like a tall order to intentionally inhabit your body in such a way you can resonate with the world from moment to moment. But so we begin with... Um, how we enter the zendo, because that's the location for our practice, initially, and then it can extend from there. So this practice of cultivating attentional presence that I brought up yesterday is um, is also the, I mean, it's the prerequisite for making experiential this idea of treating the world as a partner of resonance. You don't resonate with the world or situations because it's the world doesn't come as a thing the world comes in situations from moment to moment to um, to 
To treat situations as partners of resonance requires that we don't think the world, but feel the particularities of the moment. Again, it's like a it's like a shift in hmm. It's not like you never think the world, but it's like, what's primary is the question. Is it primary to think the world or is it primary to feel the world? The word feeling is so complicated, it could lead to, like, there might be people who say, like, oh, what are you advocating? Some kind of irrational approach to life, and, you know, it's like, forget it. Okay, fine, there, there are rational approaches to life that don't work. But the point here is, because Buddhism is about suffering, the point here is, if we end up in a world that we only think and don't feel, it we've we feel more and more alienated from the world. It becomes less and less satisfying to live. The, 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 the moments that we cherish the most are moments of resonance, you know, when you meet somebody's eyes, when you fall in love, when you are, you know, captivated by a mountain. when an animal approaches you. Those are moments of resonance. They're not like instrumentalized ways of controlling and manipulating and um, using the world. So that's where this statement comes from. We long for resonance, but we keep ending up trying to control. So, you know, Zen practice offers something like enter the Zendo with a, with a foot that's closest to the hinges, but soon enough there's somebody in the Zendo who watches everybody. It's like, aren't they doing that? <laughs> and you have a system of control. Then you're starting to watch whether it gets done and you've lost this, like, what's the inner feeling of entering and inhabiting the body attentionally and letting the room resonate, you know? It's dangerous. Um, we chant, in the Oriyoki practice, we chant the water with which we wash these bowls. How does it go? 
Tastes like ambrosia. Yes. We offer it to the various spirits to satisfy them. So I don't know if you, you know, I, I sometimes feel like I, it's not me alone, but, you know, I kind of like need to feel okay about making people chant something like that. Because <laughs> when I chant it, it's like, okay, what are these various spirits that we try to satisfy? <laughs> um, I don't know how you feel about satisfying spirits, but I wonder, you know, what is this about? Well, first of all, you know, we eat, and then there's water, and then we pour pour the water, and then we clean the bowls, and then we combine it all into one bowl, and then you offer that, right? That's the ritual. So the essence of your food, the six tastes, get all combined into this wastewater. And then we do a chant, and then we transform it into an elixir that we then drink. And we don't drink all of it, but then we pour something into this bowl, and then that bowl gets taken outside and offered to a plant. So in this, this line the water with which we uh, wash these bowls tastes like ambrosia, the food of the gods, because it becomes um, a representation, an embodied representation of interdependence. Because all this food was grown by many people and all beings contributed, and now it's somebody cooked it and shop for it and cooked it and it's now in our bowls and then it gets essentialized into the six tastes in this wastewater that we drink. But we also offer a part of it to satisfy the various spirits. <clears throat> and so sometimes I think to get away from the idea that there are these actual spirits somewhere that we try to satisfy, um, maybe we should chant, we offer it to the great mystery. To nourish it. And there you have this partnership of resonance. It's like we are nourished by the great mystery, the way the food comes to us. And then, at least symbolically here, we enact with our bodies to give something back to the great mystery so that it may be nourished too, so it can continue to nourish us. This is a partnership of resonance with that which cannot be conclusively grasped with concepts. So that's why it's spirits, or I maybe we should say the great mystery. You see, there is something that this worldview acknowledges that we don't have control over. And this practice is trying to get us attuned to the idea that we could be in relationship to that which we have no control over.
This is the wider feeling of Zazen. Don't talk yourself into wanting to use Zazen as part of your self-improvement, self-optimization, self-control project. If you approach Zazen with, I do it so that I can be a better person in whatever category you imagine that, more compassionate, more resilient, uh, more open, or whatever your goal is. If you use Zazen to to control your self-development, you've already discarded this idea of resonance. There's a subtle aggression in this. There's like, I need to be different than I am, because otherwise I'm not good enough, or not worthy, or, you know. So Zadon is this radical posture of allowing that which is to be exactly what it is at this time. And in this posture of allowing, we may find ourselves resonating. Open. Letting go of these layers of bracings. Thank you very much.